This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zakheim, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Reagan Institute Policy Director Rachel Hoff sits down with Dr. Rana Sue Inboden, who is a senior fellow with the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. They discuss China and its human rights abuses and China's attempt to co-opt U.S. liberal international human rights regimes and institutions to promote its illiberal human rights agenda. Welcome to Reaganism. I am your guest host, Rachel Hoff, the policy director here at the Reagan Institute, and I'm so pleased to be joined today by Dr. Rana Inboden. Rana, welcome to Reaganism. Thank you for having me. Rana, you have a really deep expertise and background working on Chinese foreign policy issues and human rights. You've served at the State Department, at the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. Uh, You served at the U.S. Consulate in Shanghai. And you're a particular expert on how China uses or maybe abuses the international human rights system. Uh, you've, You've led a number of groundbreaking projects along those lines uh, and really done a ton of in-depth research. We're going to dig into some some more of that later. A fun fact for our listeners by way of introduction, I was actually a research assistant of of sorts. I played a very small part in the research that contributed to uh, a book that you published that we'll be talking about later when you were my professor in graduate school. So it's a particular delight to have you on today. I remember that well, and you were a huge help. Um, I want to talk more about the book, um, but I thought it would be helpful to start for our listeners talking about a report that you recently published with the National Endowment for Democracy, which is called Defending the Global Human Rights System from Authoritarian Assault, How Democracies Can Retake the Initiative. And before we dig in on the report, I thought it might be especially useful to have you kind of define some key terms here for our listeners. Um, So first, what is the global human rights system? In your book, you call it the international human rights regime. How would you define that in a way um, that would make sense to folks? That's a great question. Um, The international human rights regime, and regime here is not used in the term of like a government, but rather a broad international system of rules, norms, proceedings that govern a particular topic or issue area. So for example, uh, we use a similar term to describe uh, the non-proliferation regime or the international trade regime. In the international human rights regime, what we usually mean is the UN's premier body to address human rights, which earlier had been the Commission on Human Rights. In 2006, it became the Human Rights Council. In addition to that body, there are also treaties governing human rights, like treaties on torture. There's also what we call special procedures. Those are independent experts who focus on uh, a particular issue or country. So for example, uh, one focusing on Belarus. And years ago, there had been one that focused on North Korea. There are also thematic ones that focus on things like the rights of children or the rights of persons with disabilities. There are also, there's also the 
Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. So the High Commissioner is sort of the UN's point person for human rights. When you think about these international institutions set up, you mentioned uh, the UN's Human Rights Council is kind of chief among them in addition to some of those other uh, institutions. While we're, while we're defining key terms, I wanted to ask you about this, this concept of human rights in general. So we have a lot of domestic debates about, um, about human rights and civil rights here in the United States, but I think there's a really baseline understanding in the US and in the free world around what, the, what human rights can be defined as, right? Things like protection from torture and enslavement and genocide, some basic political rights like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, maybe some legal rights in the in the rule of law category. Um, that's probably how most of our listeners think about human rights. I guess, number one, anything you would add to or change from that conception of human rights um, on behalf of Americans and kind of the free world. And then more to the point, how do the Chinese and the Chinese Communist Party in particular, how do they use this term human rights when they think about inter- interacting with the global human rights system that you describe? That's a great question. Um, And I should preface my answer with saying that I think that there are indeed some differences, some genuine differences uh, that the Chinese government holds. Um, But I also think some of those differences the Chinese government has developed and deployed instrumentally to protect itself. So what I mean by genuinely held beliefs is that Traditionally in Chinese history, this the country has often been plagued by a weak state. And so in a lot of ways, just having a state that can deliver a basic level of hygiene and sanitation and safety um, is something that is important to Chinese people. But I also think that the Chinese government has deployed this instrumentally, giving the state too much power, so much power that um, there, whereas in America, we think of human rights as placing limits on what the state can do. Um, I think in China, this is a very weak idea. So the Chinese often talk about a strong state is the way to secure human rights. And unfortunately, now we see that in China, a strong state has meant extensive surveillance, uh, mass detention of Uyghurs, uh, crackdown on human rights lawyers, and severe repression in in Hong Kong, as well as longstanding repression in Tibet. So some pretty pretty fundamental differences in the way that the Chinese Communist Party thinks of of that term and and certainly the way they they think of state power versus how we'd think about it in the US or in the in the free world. Um diving into to the the report that you published one of the things that you hit on I, I want to read a quote from you here the Chinese regime loathes criticism of its human rights violations and has opposed resolutions there you mean kind of in this international human rights regime, uh, back to your quote, uh, has opposed resolutions on its record vigorously, going so far as to offer generous aid to countries that vote in its favor and threatening those that resist with exclusion from its economy. So what you talk about in the report is how China has really 
again, used or abused the, the international human rights system um, to protect itself from criticism of its human rights violations. You got into some of those human rights violations um, in your last answer, sort of talking about the the Chinese system of repression and oppression. Um, what is it particularly when you talk about the CCP's sensitivity to criticism of its human rights record uh, that that seems to be so kind of built into the DNA of, of the way that the Chinese Communist Party is organized, that they're willing to go to such great lengths to protect against criticism from these international human rights bodies that you talked about? Well, I'll give you a twofold answer. I think that there are material reasons as well as a cultural reason why the Chinese uh, Communist Party-led government loads human rights criticism. I think first, going back historically, 1989, uh, when the Chinese government cracked down so violently on the protests in Tiananmen Square, um, and the Western and other uh, responses was extremely jarring for the Chinese leadership. It was a true crisis point for them. Um, China, as a result of the negative international pressure that China faced, um, they lost a significant amount of foreign investment. They lost access to international lending, and there was a diplomatic freeze. And you have to keep in mind that China at that time was not the behemoth power that it is now. And so the isolation was uh, a, a, a crisis, including a crisis of legitimacy, both domestically and internationally. The Chinese economy shrank from 11% in 1988 to roughly 3% in 1990. And for a country that was still impoverished, this was a significant loss. It also, at the same time, so I think China sees how negative international human rights attention can hurt, hurt a nation's material interests. But at the same time, I think that there is indeed something um, to do with uh, Chinese culture that makes China sensitive to international criticism. And that's a sense of um, face or the way one is viewed or perceived by others. This is incredibly important in Chinese society. And at times, um, especially prior to Xi Jinping's leadership, other countries uh, were able to use this to urge China to make some human rights improvements. So in order to avoid negative attention, China would sometimes make some human rights moves like uh, releasing prisoners of conscience. One of the noted ones that was um, released when I was at the State Department was Rabia Qadir. Um, but unfortunately, one thing I see happening is that under Xi Jinping, China is becoming less sensitive to concerns about its global image. And I think this makes it harder to obtain cooperation from China on a number of fronts and certainly on human rights. So much of your work has, has been focused on examining exactly how China uh, 
kind of shields itself from from that criticism or how they have in the past. I, I want to pick up on on your 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 point there about maybe under Chairman Xi that that's changing a bit. Um, but to the topic of 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 the NED report, um, how exactly has China um, historically at least shield itself from this criticism, leveraged kind of some of those those um, tools of economic coercion that you mentioned in the quote that I read from the report to um, to push back and 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 uh, kind of protect itself from from international human rights oversight. Um, I would say that China has had a couple of strategies and the strategies vary somewhat with regard to the countries that China is trying to target. So, for example, with the Western uh, European and North American countries, China has used threats about access to its market or economic cooperation and has will at times take uh, retaliatory measures. So, for example, China, we saw that after um, Liu Xiaobo received the, no received the Nobel Peace Prize, Norway saw a drop in its salmon imports into China. China uses that um, that threat of access to its market, both making that threat known to other countries and then also trying to make good on that. At the same time, I think China has used a different strategy with uh, the Global South. So the Global South is important because China needs to secure votes so that the resolutions on its record in the UN are defeated. And I think one very effective strategy that China has used with the Global South is just simply strongly identifying with them, uh, at times acting as a champion or spokesperson with them, and also appealing to a sense of solidarity with them. In, and this solidarity, unfortunately, is based on, a, I think, a a perception of being wronged by the West. And so China has been able to recruit a number of votes from those countries. At the same time, China has also coalesced a group uh, that is referred to as the like-minded group. It's a it's an odd term because like-minded is a diplomatic phrase. It sounds That's, very benign, doesn't it? Right. But I think that that is purposeful. I think that, you know, they're not going to go around and call them the authoritarian thuggery club. Um, but by saying they're like-minded, um, what, what really is important is what are they like-minded about? And this group resists strong human rights protections. Um, they actually, the group seems to have first started coming together in the 1990s. One of my book chapter documents how during the drafting over some torture, uh, international torture standards and trying to develop a, a strong mechanism to protect people from torture that some of these countries started to come together and speak um, to, at, in a unified voice. And then in the 1990s, the late 1990s, we really did see this group starting to speak out issuing joint statements in the Commission on Human Rights. And then at, at that point, it was still somewhat contained to about 20 to 30 countries. But then 
I document how later, after about 2006 in, in the Human Rights Council, that this group now can muster about the support of about 50 countries. 50 countries in this like-minded group of authoritarians or authoritarian-minded countries, autocracies kind of acting together. Flip the script a little bit as your as your report does and, and talk about the other side. What what are democracies doing? What is the free world doing to, to coalesce? And and uh maybe more to the point, what could or should free countries that value human rights in these organizations, what what could they be doing to to do more? Well, I I'll say also that. The like-minded group is is that a little bit more diverse than I first um, described, although it does include some hardcore repressive uh, countries. It also includes countries that are maybe not quite as bad. So, for example, Malaysia, uh, India, Singapore, and I think that those countries. Uh, also identify with this like-minded group because of their sense of their their sort of non-Western status. And so I really feel like the Western countries need to do a better job of building bridges with some of these countries and finding areas where they can cooperate. And I think that there have been the attempts to date, I think, have not been robust enough to build kind of cross-regional uh, bridges that might counteract what the like-minded group is trying to do. I I also think that even though dem democratic countries have not done enough to come together, I do see some promising signs of at least ad hoc cooperation. So one example that I'll give you is that um, in there is a UN body based in New York called the U UN NGO Committee, and it's the body that is in charge of granting consultative status, uh, UN consultative status to civil society groups. And authoritarian countries had been able to use their seats on this committee to block uh, civil society groups. I had documented how even over a thousand of them had been blocked from gaining UN consultative status. So really robbing them of a voice in um, the world's premier international body. And what I recently saw is that the U.S. started working with other governments to overturn some of these decisions by forcing a vote in the U.N. Economic and Social Council. And so this this has meant that a dozen I know that's not a huge number, but I think it's a great start about a dozen organizations that had been blocked for years have started getting uh, consultative status. And some of these groups work on issues like Syria or Belarus. And I, I love seeing this kind of creative and proactive diplomacy. And I think the collaboration with European allies is very Reagan-esque. Yeah, certainly. And that, that speaks to a point you made just a bit earlier on this concept of Western, right? I mean, you, you know, Rana, um, from our work together, that part of, part of 
the work that I do here at the Reagan Institute is lead our Center for Freedom and Democracy. And in that role, um, when I'm having these policy conversations, um, there, there is sometimes this concept of a transatlantic shared history on these issues. Certainly that speaks to President Reagan's legacy. Uh, one of his most important speeches and, and, and certainly his most important speech on this topic um, was given before the British Parliament at Westminster in 1982. But in a sense, in today's world, this concept of when we talk about Western values or Western countries or Western society, that necessarily excludes some very important democracies that very proactively enshrine freedom and human rights as core to, to the way that they run their systems around the world in places far outside the West. And also some of the countries you mentioned that are maybe a little bit more to the middle. Maybe they have elections, but don't necessarily enshrine uh, some of some of the you know other political rights in 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 uh, their societies, but are but are kind of on the edge and and or in the middle and open to uh, in some of these votes and some of these important initiatives at uh, international human rights organizations might side with China and Russia and, and real authoritarian hardline countries on certain things, but might also be inclined to side with, and here I'll use the term I think we should use rather than Western, which is the free world, which includes a lot of the West and also a lot of other countries. How, does that sort of resonate with the way that you would think about it or anything, anything you'd add there? Yes, I think that's a great point. Um, and yes, I think you're right. I, we shouldn't just speak about Western countries. And in fact, one of my chapters documents how Costa Rica um, was was chairing some of the drafting groups working on torture and has played a very positive role in the UN human rights bodies, especially as it relates to torture. Um, so you're right. It is. It doesn't do uh, justice to the diverse range of countries that are committed to human rights. I think part of the problem, though, is that some of these countries do feel the pressure um, from the Chinese government. So they, whether it's because they are getting Belt and Road uh, funding, or that they don't want to be left out of the Chinese market, or that they um, want to be part of, you know, China's uh, security uh, kind of umbrella. Th there are a number of, of ways that they do feel some kinds of pressure. And sometimes China exercises this um, very directly, and sometimes it's just dropping hints. And I also see countries often acting out of what a term that some of us refer to as preemptive obedience. So China doesn't even really have to make the threat known. Countries are just fearful because they have seen China take steps uh, before. I'm going to read our listeners another quote from, from your recent report. Um, you, you kind of charge uh, the world's democracies. You say, quote, the world's democracies must, must match and exceed authoritarian investments 
political will and diplomatic energy and can do so by starting with incorporating their funding into long-term strategy. You spoke a bit there kind of uh, in your, your last answer about um, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's investments around the world, economic coercion, some of their uh, diplomatic influence and, and here in this in this quote, you're calling for for more um, investments on on the uh, part of U U.S. And the, and the world's democracies as well. But there's a very important two words buried in that quote, which is political will, and that's what I want you to uh, speak to next. What's your assessment for where the political will in the U.S. Uh, and and free countries, democracies around the world is today for for kind of. I, I see this in my mind as a two-step process. Number one, the political will to rising to the authoritarian challenge in general. And then number two, doing so through the UN and through this human rights uh, regime that you, you talk about uh, and your, your work focuses on when there's, you know, obviously, especially here in the US, so much criticism of kind of global multilateral organizations. Sure. Well, first, I think that the U.S. and other uh, free world countries should view protecting human rights um, not so much as just about values, but as part of their national interests. Uh, democratic nations that respect human rights are often going to be more cooperative global actors and will, so in many ways, advancing human rights also advances peace and stability. I think it's not a coincidence that in an era that we see China's domestic repression increasing, we've also seen an assertive and hostile China emerging under Xi Jinping. And that wasn't always the case. Um, I think at other points, we saw a, a a China that was trying to figure out how to work with global consensus. Um, I also think that countries need to also be aware of what's happening with regard to transnational repression and autocratic nations interfering in the political processes of democratic nations. So for example, Russia trying to interfere in elections or Chinese police stations on US soil. Um, these are very dangerous things. And also transnational repression is deeply troubling because it often affects people who have fled repressive countries and have sought refuge in somewhere like the United States, but they still face uh, threats from Chinese security agents or, or, other, or um, others working on their behalf. And so I think democratic nations need to really think about that their own systems and territories will not be safe from repression unless there's a strong, robust transnational response. I've sometimes said that transnational repression needs a transnational response. I would also say that even though a lot of Americans um, feel like the UN is um, a very imperfect body, which, which I would agree with, I don't think we should lose hope. Um, partly because it still is a very important body, one where ideas, uh, key ideas take shape. Um, so for example, the idea that somebody should not be tortured into making a, a confession if they're a criminal suspect. This is embodied in some of the international 
uh, torture standards. And so I think that um, we need to keep in mind that the the long-term trajectory of these bodies will have a lot of impact on how people around the world think about human rights. When you think about political will, and you give you give a I think a really solid answer for for why the United States should should um, consider kind of the the international human rights regime and and the UNHCR despite um, its problems and and the UN's uh, flaws as you mentioned you know are still valuable potential roads to make make improvements in the human rights situation around the world. But when you think about political will, so that's something we think about in the US because we're a democracy. It's not something that authoritarian regimes are burdened with in a certain sense, right? The, the Chinese Communist Party can at a centralized and very high level from Beijing set, uh, set a policy, set a strategy. And of course, there's no questioning in, within government. Their diplomatic agencies are fully mobilized. Their uh, economic agencies are fully mobilized to those ends as you've talked about. And it doesn't matter what the people think. In some ways, that's an advantage of that system. And the work of building political will in free countries is hard. Talk a bit about what you see as the advantages that the U.S. and other democracies around, around the world have have in this way. I mean, I think your your point earlier on our um, you know kind of universal values and and seeing those as in line with our interests is, might be an interesting starting point. Um, but as hard as it might be to sort of have to wrestle with political will and building political will to do this work in democracies, um, what are some of the advantages on our side of the table? Well, I think a huge advantage um, is the ideas. And I think that if you watched the white paper movement um, demonstrations in China, and I was I was glued to that. Um, and these the, were these were the protests where people were literally holding up blank white sheets of paper right. as though they were protesting, but there was nothing written on them. Right. And I think that they were getting at the lack of freedom of expression and uh, government censorship. But the ideas that the U.N. human rights system is meant to protect and advance are ideas that truly resonate with people around the world. And so in in a lot of those videos for, over the white paper movement, they were not the chants were not just about covid lockdowns. At their heart, it was about human dignity and a right to be free from government coercion and repression. So I think um, one of the advantages is just that the, these ideas are universal because they transcend culture, they transcend time, um, and they, they appeal to people. Um, I would also say that, you know, I don't think the, our country has done enough to galvanize a variety of sectors to uh, to the cause of freedom. So, for example, I think there's a lot that American universities could do. I think that the uh, U.S. private sector, especially companies, could have much more robust corporate social responsibility programs. I also would love to see the philanthropic uh, sector really thinking 
about how they can use their funding in impactful ways. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, part of my early career was spent um, managing and directing a grant making program at the US State Department. And I, and I continue to do consulting for foundations. And I've seen ways that even a little bit of funding can be deeply helpful to even groups like Uyghur run groups that are trying to raise awareness about the use of massive forced labor, the massive amounts of uh, detention, um, other ways that China is persecuting Uyghurs even when they are not in detention. I mean, it's, it's so, the surveillance in the Uyghur region is so extensive that people literally don't have freedom of movement. Um, and so I, I have seen that these groups are doing a really um, admirable job getting um, some issues on the spotlight on some of these issues. And I think that it's important to look at ways that we could support that. So I think we could just be using the range of sectors that don't exist in authoritarian countries to the cause of freedom. As we start to wind down our conversation today, I wanna kind of zoom out and ask you more, uh, kind of to look at the historical evolution of, of um, China on these issues and pick up on a, th a thread you you brought up earlier. We've, we've talked about your book a few times. Your book is called China and the International Human Rights Regime, 1982 to 2017. There's one very important year in that range. You've already mentioned it earlier, 1989, when the Tiananmen Square massacre brought a huge spotlight on Beijing and on the Chinese Communist Party human rights abuses for, for the whole world to see. You, I, I want to get to today's China here, here in a bit, but um, for our listeners, you know, it's hard to even think about China in a, in a, in a context that doesn't include Tiananmen today. But just briefly, can you, can you talk a little bit about China prior to Tiananmen Square? How did they interact with this kind of international organizations, international human rights regime before that kind of critical moment in their own in their own history and in the way that they interacted with the world? Right. So prior to 1989, China was actually gradually and cautiously increasing its participation throughout the UN, including surprisingly the human rights bodies. Um, so they had joined the Commission on Human Rights. Um, but I think that they were, there was still some caution and some skepticism about it, but they were at least receptive to learning more. Um, I also think that there truly was a moment in time when the Chinese uh, leadership was debating the the implementation of political and legal reform. I think, of course, we have seen now that under Xi Jinping that has gone in a, a almost a totalitarian-like um, way. And many of us who have watched China for years, unfortunately, feel like we're seeing versions of the Mao era resurface. But I would say that, you know, China after 1989, you see China starting to resist strengthening the human rights regime. You still see them joining things, but I think that they start to do so, like joining the Human Rights Council, 
um, or joining drafting groups, I think they do so to watch to watch out for their own interests, to try to cap or hold back the strengthening or the future trajectory of the human rights regime. You described China until quite recently as kind of keeping a low profile in the human rights regime in that way. Um, your book, your book ends in 2017, but a lot has happened since then. Um, and you you spoke earlier to to the rise of Chairman Xi, um, and and how kind of the trajectory of China and on the international stage has changed. That's certainly true in kind of the geopolitical sense. And a lot of China watchers are paying attention to their military buildup, to their increasing aggression um, in the Indo-Pacific region overall, and particularly with regard to their democratic neighbor in Taiwan. Um, speak a little bit, if you would, to kind of how China's evolved in more recent years under Xi Jinping's leadership um, in when it when it comes to kind of this this human rights and this international uh, international institutions piece. Yeah, you know, it's funny, the book ends in 2017, partly because I realized if I kept updating the book to include the PRC's most recent shenanigans in the UN, I would never finish. You'd um, never get to publish it. Right. right. But that said, 2017 turns out to be an important inflection point because it was around this time um, that you're right, China uh, departs from a low profile posture um, where it's mainly just trying to protect itself from human rights scrutiny to um, a much more muscular stance. And you see that after 2017, China begins to introduce resolutions in the UN Human Rights Council that propagate its human rights views and include a number of Xi Jinping's slogans, such as win-win cooperation or a community of shared future. Um, and this asserted push is much more than just introducing what I call Shiisms, but also advancing some concepts that I think are somewhat dangerous. So for example, the, the Chinese term mutually beneficial cooperation. Sure, even though it sounds innocuous or even good to cooperate, um, in the human rights field, sometimes you need to be able to call governments out for their abuses that they willfully engage in, um, such as China's mass detention of ethnic Uyghurs or the pervasive severe repression in Belarus. Um, and so if you don't have, if, if China keeps introducing these ideas like mutually beneficial cooperation, the, the risk is that we won't, we won't have strong tools at our disposal to spotlight and highlight human rights abuses um, wh when they occur in in countries like like some of China's like-minded group uh, allies. Well, speaking of history, President Ronald Reagan had has an enormous legacy on on the issues that you focus on um, during the context of the Cold War and the Soviet Union being the primary authoritarian. Um, competitor to the United States and aggressor around the world. Um, President Reagan was always so staunch in his defense of human rights, uh, and he regularly stood up for dissidents and prisoners behind the Iron Curtain, uh, both in his, his public messaging um, on foreign policy, but also leader to leader with uh, Soviet premiers, um, speaking in very specific terms, calling for, for freedom and human rights um, 
for named individual prisoners uh, behind behind the Iron Curtain. Looking at the context of today's uh, U.S. political leadership, we've talked a lot about kind of the international human rights system and and what what more it could be doing and how how China is kind of um, interacting there. But when it comes to kind of our domestic political leaders, what advice do you think President Reagan would have for for today's U.S. Uh, political leaders on China and human rights? Well, I think that President Reagan um, would want our our nation to be standing up for dissidents. And so, for example, I would have loved to see President Biden or other high level leaders expressing concern about the abuses in China and then naming prisoners of conscience who are in jail. So, for example, the cases of Ilham Toti and Rahil Dawit, these are two ethnic Uyghur professors who are serving life sentences merely for their research and their interest in Uyghur culture and identity. Um, and I also, the case of Pastor Wang Yi, he, I actually do pro bono advocacy on Pastor Wang Yi, and he was arrested in 2018, and received a nine-year sentence, and his only real crime was being a pastor who faithfully preached and also being willing to speak out against the CCP. If he serves his full term, his son will be 19 years old when he is released. And so I think that our leaders need to be willing to um, raise these cases publicly. I think they need to be raising these cases um, directly with the Chinese government at high levels, um, not just at working levels. I, I also think that President Reagan would tell America something that I think he was especially good at grasping during the Cold War was that the tensions are not not just about power, but there's an ideal, but also an ideological struggle. Um, and and also that I think our leaders need to take a longer term view with China. So raising human rights issues and cases with China and being more vocal about China might might cause the Chinese leadership to get upset or fail to cooperate or cancel a meeting. And these certainly are painful short-term um, issues in the bilateral relationship. But I think what President Reagan would have seen that in the long run, a more free China would pose less, less of a threat to the international community. Dr. Rana Inboden, we end every podcast here on Reaganism by asking our guests to share with us their favorite um, quote from President Reagan, their favorite speech by President Reagan, or their favorite book about President Reagan. If our listeners are familiar with your last name, they, they might uh, accuse you of being a little biased if you're going to share a favorite book with us, but any one, two, or all three of those to share with us before we close. Well, I'll say that um, President's speech at, at Point Du Hoc is probably my favorite. Um, the language is so evocative, um, but more importantly, the themes in it, um, affirming freedom, the bravery and self-sacrifice of the young Americans who were willing to fight and unity with allies, um, and also working on a cause bigger than ourselves. Um, I also think nobody will be surprised that my favorite book is my husband's book, The Peacemaker. 
um, which is on Reagan and the ends of the Cold War. Uh, I was often with Will at the Reagan archives as he painstakingly researched the book and I proofread many of the chapters. Our, um, one of our sons said that daddy was taking such a long time writing the book that he himself at age five wrote about four Reagan books during the same time. Of course they were, <laughs> they were scribble, but um, I love Will's writing. I think it's poetic. Um, I also think that he does such a good job of, even though the stakes during the Cold War were so high and quite scary, I always find myself in a better mood after reading Will's book because it highlights American ingenuity, the importance of global leadership, and it, it leaves me hopeful that our country can play a positive role in the world. The other Dr. Inboden's book is certainly one of our favorites here at the Reagan Institute. Uh, but for the purposes of today's conversation, Dr. Rana Sue Inboden, thank you so much for joining us on Reaganism. Thank you, Rachel. It was wonderful to be with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.